0: Nehemiah chapter 2 is where we're going to be this morning if you want to open up your Bibles there. Nehemiah chapter 2, we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 10 this morning. The title of the message is Prayer in Action. Of course, back in chapter 1, we were introduced to a man named Nehemiah, a Jewish man. His name means Yahweh comforts. It seems very early on in the chapter, we discover that he's a godly man. We can see that from his prayer, his relationship with the Lord, his knowledge of the word of God, and serving there in the king's court, he's the cupbearer to the king in a pretty high position, and he receives news of what's happening in Jerusalem. Of course, at this point in time, the first wave of exiles have already gone back to Jerusalem, rebuild the temple, and so Nehemiah, a Jewish man, he's wondering what's going on, and because he's interested to see what is the progress that's being made, and he gets a pretty bad report. Well, the walls are broken down, and the gates are burned with fire, and the city is desolate. Jerusalem is this sad, dangerous place to be, and Nehemiah becomes distraught. Uh, Though we don't have any reason to believe he's ever been to Israel before, he's ever been to Jerusalem, but again, he's a godly man, he knows the scriptures, and so this was the land promised to his people. This was the land of his forefathers. Uh, This was the city that God had attached his name to in a special way, and so he hears of the desolation, and he's distraught. He becomes overwhelmed, but instead of just rushing out and having some knee jerk reaction, he could have run out and said something right away to the king Hey, you got to do something about this. He could have tried to rally some supporters. Hey, do you hear what's going on? Instead of doing those things, he falls to his knees and he begins to pray and seek the Lord. And in Nehemiah's prayer, on one hand, he acknowledges, you know, we only have ourselves to blame. God, you warned us in your word that this was going to happen if we fell into sin, if we fell into idolatry, that we would be scattered into the nations as a form of discipline and correction. God, you said that you were going to do that and you did it and so we're without excuse and he acknowledges that. But then there are some things that Nehemiah reminds the Lord of. He reminds him of his word and the promises that he made and of course God doesn't need to be reminded the way that you and I do. It's not like God forgot. It's not like Nehemiah is bringing something up that the Lord's like, oh, wow, thanks, Nehemiah. I forgot I said that. The Lord knows that he said it, but as Nehemiah is bringing these things before the Lord, what he's doing is a couple of things. Number one, he's processing his circumstances through the word of God. He's looking at what's going on around him, and he's lining that up with Scripture, and he's saying, yes, this is exactly what the Lord said would happen, and I think it's so important that we do that, so important that we process our circumstances through Scripture, especially when we're going through some difficult season, we're having some dark time in our life, because that's, in those moments, that's when we think to ourselves, well, you know, God's abandoned me, and I'm all here alone, and does anyone care when we can process our circumstances through the word? Is this something that God said I should expect? Is this something that God had told me was going to take place? We process what's going on through the word. Nehemiah is doing that in this prayer, but he's also now claiming these promises of Scripture. He's saying, not only were these things true long ago, Lord, they're still true today. This is still relevant for us. And of course, that's exactly what we're doing here this morning. We acknowledge this is a passage of Scripture written thousands of years ago, and it had specific meaning and application to those who were being written about, but it still has application for us. The Word of God is living And it's powerful how sad and how tragic it is that there would be churches who would avoid Scripture, who would avoid the Word of God. Oh, that's not relevant, that's so old. The Bible will be applied to your life in ways that you couldn't even really predict or imagine because it's living. It's God's holy Word, and He'll speak right into your circumstances. And so Nehemiah, he's claiming these promises because Yes, it's true, they were scattered into the nations just like God had warned them about, but Nehemiah says, but Lord, you also said that if we would turn to you, no matter how far away we might be, if we turn to you with all of our heart, that you would be merciful, that you would hear from heaven and respond. And of course, that's exactly what Solomon said when he dedicated the temple in Jerusalem. As Solomon is dedicating the temple, he says something really interesting. He says, when your people sin, not if. (laughs) Solomon knew that's a foregone conclusion. They're gonna fail. They're gonna blow it at some point. When they sin, if they look back towards this place, may you be merciful. He said, when your people are scattered into the nations because of sin, because of rebellion, and as a form of discipline, when they're driven into these nations, when that happens, Lord, if they look back towards this place, this place of sacrifice, this place of worship, if they look back towards you, would you be merciful? Would you hear from heaven and respond? And of course, it's God responding to this prayer of Solomon that we read 2 Chronicles chapter 7, verse 14, where God said, If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, Then I will hear from heaven and forgive their sin and heal their land. And of course, we understand that was a promise given to the nation of Israel, specifically if they would be scattered away, if they would turn to God, that he would bring them back and heal them and restore them. But that's not a stretch at all to consider the spiritual application for us this morning, that no matter how far away it might seem that you are walking away from the Lord, that if you would turn to him with all of your heart, if you would humble yourself and seek his face, that there's mercy and there's forgiveness. When you look back to the place of sacrifice, and of course, we're not looking back to the temple in Jerusalem. When we look back to the cross, when we look back to the place where his blood was shed, oh, there's mercy and there's grace and there's forgiveness. And so Nehemiah is bringing all of these things to the Lord in prayer. And prayer, of course, it's good, it's important, Too often it's neglected in the Christian life, and that just shouldn't be. And yet, at some point, prayer needs to turn into action of some kind, some kind of response. You know, we find ourselves in situations from time to time where we say, well, all we can do is pray. Prayer is a lot, but there's usually some kind of response Some kind of action. Lord, what am I supposed to do with this burden that you placed upon my heart? How should I respond? Is there some step of faith? Is there some step of obedience? And of course, that's where we're picking up in the story here with Nehemiah, is this prayer is leading to action. Because as true as it is, that every once in a while, we sort of rush into things without praying, We just have some knee-jerk reaction. Well, here's what we need to do. Here's how the situation should be solved. Or we'll talk to anybody and everybody other than God, and we'll get their advice, and we'll get their opinions, and we'll try and rally supporters around us. And of course, it never ends well when we rush into action before we pray. And so as true as that is, I think it's also possible that we sort of get stuck in this place where we say, well, you know, I'm thinking about that. I'm praying about that, and I would almost put praying about that in quotations because sometimes we use that as an excuse to just sort of put off what we know the Lord's putting on our heart. Oh, I'm still praying about that, you know. Oh, Lord, I'm praying. You know, give me an opportunity to share Your Word, and then a Jehovah Witness comes to the door, and it's like, nope, not him. <laughs> you know, try again, Lord. You know, is our heart really in the prayer? Are we really looking for an opportunity to respond because prayer should lead to action, some step of faith and obedience, and that's what we're going to be looking at here this morning. I'll start reading here in this passage. I'll read down to verse 3, and we'll get into our study. So Nehemiah chapter 2, verse 1 says, And it came to pass in the month of Nisan, in the twentieth year of King Artaxerxes, When wine was before him, that I took the wine and gave it to the king. Now I had never been sad in his presence before. Therefore the king said to me, Why is your face sad since you are not sick? This is nothing but sorrow of heart. So I became dreadfully afraid and said to the king, May the king live forever. Why should my face not be sad when the city, the place of my father's tombs, lies waste and its gates are burned with fire?" Now, verse 1 says that it came to pass in the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes. Now, before we get too far into our study here in Nehemiah 2, there's an important date for us to consider because this is a starting point to a prophecy. The prophecy is in Daniel chapter 9, and so it's important that we would be able to understand that. Now, I have to warn you, as we get into Daniel chapter 9, it's going to be a bit much, mm, I'm, Warning ahead of time. It's a bit much. There's math involved. You're gonna have this temptation to check out. Don't do it. It's not common core math. It's like really simple old school math, you know, two plus two kind of stuff. Okay, so we're gonna go. I actually have some slides to show you here. Uh, Pastor Chris, he was giving me a hard time because I'm not really a slide person. And then now that I am, he's like, wow, James, white and black, really elaborate. You know, (laughs) Pastor Chris, he's kind of the graphic artist around here. Uh, So he was knocking my slides a little bit, though he said that before he realized it could do this. Look at that. I mean, pretty fancy, you know. I mean, for me, this is like, I don't know if this is Hawaiian shirt level, but this is this is really branching out. Okay. So Daniel 9, 24, here is this prophecy that's given to the prophet. It says, 70 weeks are determined for your people and for your holy city to finish the transgression to make an end of sins, to make reconciliation for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy. And so one of the first things we notice, this is a prophecy for your people and for your holy city. Daniel's people, the Jewish people, your holy city, this is talking about Jerusalem. And what is it going to do? What is it going to accomplish? It's to finish transgression. To make an end of sins, reconciliation for iniquity, bring in everlasting righteousness. And so one of the things that you have to realize right off the bat is that this prophecy clearly has not been completely fulfilled. To make an end of sins, uh, to bring in everlasting righteousness, you could say that, well, when Jesus stepped into our world, that that started, it began then, but we wouldn't look around at the world that we're living in and say, oh, there's an end of sin or everlasting righteousness has been brought in. No, that still is gonna happen in the future. And so that's something that becomes clear. And one of the things that you kind of have to keep in the back of your mind as we're going through this, 70 weeks are determined. What is he talking about when he says 70 weeks? The word would literally be translated 77s. And so what are these 77s? Is it talking about a seven-day week? Or is it talking about a period of seven years? Because it could also be used that way. And it becomes clear, I think, as we make our way through, we're talking about 77-year periods. Not days, but years. And I think that becomes clear as you make your way through. You look at the very next verse. Verse. Verse 25 of Daniel 9. Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there shall be seven weeks and 62 weeks. The street shall be built again and the wall even in troublesome times. So know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem. That's happening Here in Nehemiah 2, this command is going to be given to restore and rebuild Jerusalem. Some would maybe try to connect the days of Ezra and him coming back to Jerusalem, but that was to rebuild the temple. Here, this prophecy, it specifically says restore and rebuild Jerusalem, and we're specifically told about the streets and the wall that's going to be built in troublesome times. That's in the days of Nehemiah. So, Nehemiah chapter 2, the command is going to go out to restore and rebuild Jerusalem. And so, this timeline is given that from that command in Nehemiah 2, there's going to be this period of seven weeks and 62 weeks. So, a total of 69 weeks in all. Until what? Until Messiah the Prince. So, this exact timeline is given. From the command that's given in Nehemiah 2 until the Messiah, until Jesus is gonna arrive on the scene, there's going to be a period of 69 weeks. Now again, weeks could literally be translated. Sevens, it seems pretty clear, we're talking about a period of seven years. If you were talking about days from the command to restore and rebuild Jerusalem, then Jesus would have had to come much earlier than that. So we know that math for the days doesn't work out. We have to be talking about seven-year periods of time. Of course, you notice, then this prophecy that's given in verse 25, it says that 69 weeks from the going forth of the command to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until the Messiah, the Prince. But originally, Daniel's told, 70 sevens are determined upon your people and your holy city. So why now are we only talking about the 69? I thought 77s were declared. Well, there remains one seven-year period of time that's yet to be fulfilled. Of course, we refer to that seven-year period of time as the tribulation. Because you go back and you think of Daniel 9, 24, what is that gonna bring in? Everlasting righteousness, What is that gonna bring in? An end of sin. That's what's gonna happen at the end of the tribulation. Of course, many of the Jewish people come to faith in Jesus Christ during that time and the tribulation ends with the second coming. Jesus returning to this earth, establishing his kingdom and ushering in everlasting righteousness. And so there still remains that one last seven-year period But now here are these 69 weeks, these 69 seven-year periods from the going forth of the command to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince. Now, Sir Robert Anderson has probably the most famous work on the subject. His book called The Coming Prince is a commentary on the book of Daniel, and he deals with all of this. There have been a few other authors who have come after him who kind of take his math, and they try and use it, and they come up with their conclusions. He has probably the most authoritative work, and he kind of lays out his math and how he came across all of this, how he arrived at this start date. We know from Nehemiah 2, this is in the 20th year of the reign of King Artaxerxes, this is in the month of Nisan, and so using the Bible, using secular history, he explains how he arrives at March 14th, 445 B.C., March 14th, 445 BC, the command is given to restore and rebuild Jerusalem. And from that point, here's this timetable that's given of 69 weeks, which would then translate into 483 years. 483 years multiplied by a 360 day. Now, I told you it'd be a little much, didn't I? Hold on, come on, come on, stay with me. 483 years multiplied by 360 days, that's the Hebrew calendar for the year, you arrive at 173,880 days. So March 14th, 445 BC, plus 173,880 days, you would arrive at April 6th, AD 32, which just so happens to be Palm Sunday, the triumphal entry. As Jesus is coming down off of the Mount of Olives, riding on a donkey, and for the very first time, receiving that praise and that worship. As you read through the Gospels, you know he was always holding it back. Now, for the very first time on this day, he's receiving that praise and worship. And they're quoting from Psalm 118, a messianic psalm. Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And they're laying down these palm branches and and they're praising, and and the religious leaders, of course, hear what's going on, and they say, hey, tell them to stop. And Jesus said, if they were to stop, the rocks would cry out. Why? I think that exact day was prophesied. This is when he's gonna show up, Psalm 118, verse 24. This is the day that the Lord has made, and we will rejoice and be glad in it. Jesus, in Luke 19, after the triumphal entry, he said, if you only would have known especially you in this, your day, the things that are prepared for your peace. This is the day that was prophesied. Now, of course, it's easy to get lost in some of that math. And I mentioned, there's some other books. Uh, There's a book called The Chronological Aspects of the Life of Christ. It's a real page turner. Uh, But it gets into some of this as well. And you you can sort of debate, oh, I think maybe it was this year, I think it was that year. But you're talking about a very small window of time that the specific day that the Messiah was going to arrive on the scene. And there in Daniel, he goes on to say that the Messiah would be cut off violently, that he would be killed, but not for himself. And so the very day that Jesus, the Messiah, was going to arrive on the scene was prophesied, and the fact that he was going to have to die, but not for himself, was all given And so how could you miss it? How could you miss that prophecy? Well, one of the reasons why it was pretty commonly understood and is still taught in some circles that the book of Daniel is too holy of a book to read. You shouldn't read it. It's too holy. You're not going to understand it. You know, leave it to the experts. The commoner really shouldn't be reading the book of Daniel. There's one easy way that you would miss it, which Side note, if you ever find yourself in a church or you know, some circle of Christians where they say, don't read the Bible, that's probably not the place for you. That's a good sign you're listening to a false teacher. You could be in a cult. This is a bad situation when somebody says, no, no, I'll give you the interpretation. You just listen to what I have to say. The apostle Paul, he could say to the Ephesians, no, I'm, I'm guiltless because I know I've given you the whole counsel of God. I haven't left anything out. The apostle Paul wasn't angry when the Bereans went home and searched the scriptures to see if what he was saying was true. He wasn't angry, he commended them. And so that's always a bad sign when someone says, well, don't read this, because here it's all spelled out. And one of the things that we have to understand here in Nehemiah 2, this command is given the exact day that Jesus is going to arrive on the scene is prophesied. And one of the things that you have to realize is that God is sovereign, he's in control. You know, you think of the crazy world that Daniel was in, that Nehemiah was in, what was happening during the days of Jesus and the Roman Empire and Caesar Augustus issues this decree that the whole world would be taxed and all of these kings and leaders and tyrants and they think they're in control and they couldn't stop for a second the exact day that Jesus was gonna show up, the exact day that he would be presented as the Messiah, the Savior of the world. God measures out our days, our years, our moments, our seconds. God knew that we would all be gathered here together on this day, and he knows what's going on in your life. He knows what season you're coming out of. He knows what season you're headed into, and he loves you. How do I know that he loves you? Well, because he would be cut off violently, but not for himself, for you. His blood was shed for you and for me, that we could have life, that we could have forgiveness in a relationship with him. And so this incredible prophecy is given to us here from this command that goes forth we know the day that the Messiah is gonna arrive on the scene. So it came to pass in the month of Nisan in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, wine is brought before him. I took him the wine and gave it to the king. Now, i had never been sad in his presence before. Therefore, the king said to me, why is your face sad? Since you are not sick, this is nothing but sorrow of heart. So I became dreadfully afraid. Now, one of the things that we could easily miss in going through this section Nehemiah it says that he's dreadfully afraid because he's sad. One of the things that we have to understand that in the ancient world among, among monarchs, to be sad in the king's presence was punishable by death. <laughs> it was a strange world they lived in. The king wanted to be surrounded with a bunch of happy yes-men who just, you know, commended him all, wow. King, you're killing it. Wow, this is so great. What a fantastic world that you've created. Just wanted to be surrounded with a bunch of happy yes men. I don't know how much has changed in our day. That seems to be a pretty common thing among leaders a bunch of yes men. Maybe the penalty for being sad is a little extreme here. Nehemiah could be put to death for being sad in the king's presence, so it makes sense that he becomes dreadfully afraid. But the other thing that we could miss is the period of time that goes by. The month of Nisan, not only is this telling us the start date for this command to restore and rebuild Jerusalem, but it's also letting us know that Nehemiah has been praying about this for about four months. And so this wasn't some quick reaction. He didn't immediately go to the king and make all of these things known. Four months of prayer and fasting have gone by, and there have been some things that have developed over this period of time. And something that I've noticed in my relationship with the Lord, perhaps you've noticed this as well, is that time has a way of working on us. Time has a way of of producing some things, especially as it relates to maybe a burden that the Lord has put on your heart. A little bit of time goes by, and... If that burden is not from him, it starts to fade away. It starts to become a little less of a focus. If the burden is from him, then it will intensify. And so that's usually one of the first questions I'll ask. Somebody will come and say, you know, I've got this burden from the Lord. I've got this vision for this ministry, and here's what I want to do, and I'm real excited about it. One of the first things I'll say is, well, how long have you been praying about that? Since yesterday. (laughs) Since this morning, it's been this heavy burden on my heart. And, And I never try to be discouraging because that's always exciting. That's good that someone is looking for ways to serve and wants to be involved and excited for the work that God wants to do. But I'm never ashamed to say, you know, let's just pray about that. Let's seek the Lord on that. Because if the burden is really from him, then praying about it and seeking him, it's only gonna intensify. It's only gonna become more and more of a glaring need. It's only gonna be something that you realize and it's gonna come into crystal clarity, the work that needs to be done. As we continue on here in just a moment with Nehemiah, it's gonna be clear he's thought about the work. He's had some time to consider it. And so if it's really from him, if you're gonna pray and you're gonna seek the Lord, then it's gonna intensify, it's gonna grow, it's gonna become more and more consuming. You're gonna say, well, here's the work that needs to be done. If it's not from him, it starts to fade and maybe it goes to the back of your mind, oh, that's a great need and maybe that's something the Lord would have for me in the future, but perhaps it's not for the here and now. Nehemiah is in the place where this is from the Lord and so it has intensified and now he can't even pretend. Now he can't even act happy for a moment in the presence of the king because it's become so clear and so the king calls him out on that. What's this? You're sad in front of me. This has never happened before. You're not sick. This is nothing but sorrow of heart and so what's the deal? And Nehemiah, dreadfully afraid because he knows what could happen to him, he says in verse three, may the king live forever. (laughs) I wonder if he's also thinking, and it'd be nice if I could live for a little bit longer too, you know, at least past this conversation. May the king live forever. Why should my face not be sad when the city, the place of my father's tombs, lies waste and its gates are burned with fire? That's a pretty gutsy thing to say. Now, he's trying to be respectful. May the king live forever. But then he comes right out and says, you know what, though? But why would my face not be sad? This this issue that could be punishable by death, Nehemiah is like, what choice do I really have? The city lies in waste. Its gates are burned with fire. This is the place of my father's tombs. Why should my face not be sad? You know, there's a lot of needs in our world. I don't know if you've noticed. And it can be overwhelming at times because there's this realization we couldn't possibly meet every need. But there are some things that the Lord will put on your heart some burdens it'll place specifically upon you a work for you to be involved in it might be a burden for the unborn it might be a burden for the lost it might be for the mission field it might be some issue in the church the children's ministry the youth ministry it might be something going on in your home in your family in some relationship it might be an individual the lord will put this burden on your heart this work for you to do and if it really is from him until you pray Until you seek the Lord, until you respond, this is gonna be your response, well, how could my face not be sad? There's this incredible need, and I'm not doing anything about it. Here, Nehemiah, his name means Yahweh comforts, but he's not comfortable in the palace. He's not comfortable in a lot of luxury and privilege and advantage. No, where he's gonna be comfortable is on this long, dangerous journey that's just exhausting, dealing with all of these people, dealing with opposition, trying to rally everybody together around this common goal. That's where he's gonna be comfortable. Why? Because he's right in the center of God's will. He's engaged in the work that God has given him to do. And the same is gonna be true in our life. If the Lord puts something on your heart, You have to pray, you have to seek him, you have to respond to what he's calling you to do. And so now here is the response of the king in verse four. Then the king said to me, what do you request? So I prayed to the God of heaven and I said to the king, if it pleases the king and if your servant has found favor in your sight, I ask that you send me to Judah, to the city of my father's tombs, that I may rebuild it. Then the king said to me, the queen also sitting beside him, how long will your journey be? And when will you return? So it pleased the king to send me and I set him a time. Furthermore, I said to the king, if it pleases the king, let letters be given to me for the governors of the region beyond the river that they must permit me to pass through till I come to Judah. And a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he must give me timber to make beams for the gates of the citadel, which pertains to the temple, for the city wall, and for the house that I will occupy. And the king granted them to me according to the good hand of my God upon me. So the king simply says, what do you request? And Nehemiah said, so I prayed to the God of heaven, and then I responded. There doesn't seem to be a whole lot of time that's suggested there. I would imagine that's a pretty quick prayer. What are we talking about here? A little pause in the conversation where Nehemiah is like, okay, Lord, give me wisdom. Oh, here it is. We've been praying about this for months, God, but okay, lead this conversation. A pretty quick prayer, and I don't know that we always wanna rely solely on those kinds of prayers. Sometimes we do it. Sometimes we wait until we're in that pressure cooker moment to throw up a a quick prayer to the Lord. Much better to be in a position where you've been praying about it for months and then this is on top of all of that. And yet at the same time, it's a valid prayer. You know, 1 Thessalonians 5.17 says to pray without ceasing, to constantly be aware of the fact that God is with me and I can pray to him and I don't always have to close my eyes or fold my hands or bow my head or you know, have this official address, you know, start the conversation one way, you know, pick up the phone one way and hang it up another. Sometimes just in my heart, I can say, Lord, be with me. Lord, give me wisdom. Oh, Lord, lead this conversation. Just this prayer that's made in a pretty short period of time And Nehemiah now is giving this over to the Lord, and he's asking him to step in and work in this situation and to respond. Now, there's a few things that happen during the four months of prayer for Nehemiah that I think we have to acknowledge, because we really don't always like the idea of waiting on the Lord. Usually, if there's something heavy on our heart, it's like, God, save now. (laughs) Work in this situation right away, and Lord, I know how it should be resolved. If you want to, you know, ask me, I'll go ahead and tell you. And, And Lord, can you just bring about some swift response? But there's some important things that happened during the four months here as Nehemiah is praying. And the first thing is he's really had time to consider the task in front of him. He's been able to count the cost. He's been able to really consider the travel time that it would take and All that they would have to do and then how long it would take to come back. We see that in verse 6. Nehemiah gives a timetable to the king. Well, here's how long this should take me. We see in verse 7, he asks for official documents from the king because he's anticipated some challenges. He realized, you know, if I come traveling down and I'm here to rebuild the city, there's going to be other governors and leaders who might challenge and question me. And so, king, would you give me official documents? that lets them know I'm coming on your authority. Uh, We see in verse eight, he says, and I want official documents that I could go to the king's forest, that I'm gonna get all of the supplies and all of the lumber that I'm gonna need. Nehemiah has had enough time to really think it through. If he would have just rushed right to the king and he's immediately sad, and oh, what is your request? He might've been like, "Uh, mm, let me get back to you on that, Uh, I don't know. He might've missed that opportunity. Enough time has gone by that he's really been able to consider it. You know, Jesus said, count the cost of being a disciple. Don't get halfway into the work and then say to yourself, oh, I didn't realize it would cost me this. I didn't realize I would have to lay this down. You know, Jesus says, count the cost. Consider what it would take. You know, Nehemiah becomes a really good example of what it's like to blend that, the spiritual and practical side of things. Now, sometimes we use as an excuse for poor planning. Well, you know, I'm just trying to be led of the Lord, just trying to be led of the Lord in all of this. You know, like you have a choice to make. You can be led of the Lord, or you can think and plan and use the brain that God has given you. Nehemiah is an and kind of guy. He's like, hey, both of these things are true. Now, you can't deny the fact he was seeking God, praying, praying fasting, oh Lord, give me wisdom. Even in this conversation, he quickly prays, oh Lord, give me the words to say. And so he's seeking the Lord, but he didn't see that as somehow a problem or an issue with planning and preparation. You know, the old adage is, if you fail to plan, you plan to fail. I think there's something to be said there. Nehemiah, he counts the cost, he uses his mind, he's practical in his approach, and yet at the very same time, we can trust in the Lord with all of our heart and lean not on our own understanding and all of our ways acknowledge him and he will direct our paths. I think Nehemiah is a good blend of that. And so that's one of the things that's happened during this period of time. The second thing that happens, I think, is God is granting Nehemiah favor with the king. He's setting up this whole situation. At the end of verse eight, we read that the king granted them to me according to the good hand of my God upon me. So Nehemiah is able to say, oh, he's given me these things and he's granting me all of these things, but that's because of the good hand of my God that's upon me. And so God is using everything and is working behind the scenes to bring Nehemiah into a place of favor. And I think he's setting up this exact moment. Do you realize that God does that? Do you realize that there are these divine appointments in your life where he orchestrated everything? The person that was going to be there, the person that you're talking to, the circumstances of your life, God will organize these divine appointments to just speak to you directly. God set this whole thing up. You know, it says in verse six that the queen was there. You know, when you're reading through it, it just seems like a little addition to the story. Oh, the queen was also there. Oh, that's a little bit of information. But I wonder what's being said there. I mean, number one, if the queen is there, that probably tells us it wasn't some uh, formal public setting. It was probably more private. And so it gives Nehemiah a smaller audience to really be dealing with than the king. But I also wonder if she has something to do with the outcome. You know, we're not told that she specifically influences the king, but you have to wonder. Seems awfully perceptive for a man, to notice the emotional well-being of Nehemiah. You know, it seems awfully perceptive of a man to say, you know, you seem distraught, and this isn't sickness. This is nothing but sorrow of heart. It doesn't even sound like a guy. You just kind of wonder if the queen is there cluing him in on some things. I've noticed in my life that the queen often notices things that the king does not. I can be pretty oblivious. And my wife would be like, oh, something's wrong. Something's not right. I think they're upset. I think they're sad. I think they're hungry. That's usually what she thinks. Uh, she, she shows love by giving food, obviously. And so, you know, sometimes women, you know, they'll just pick up on things that the guys don't. I, I wonder. It just seems like God has set this all up to give Nehemiah this private audience with the king, and perhaps the queen is there cluing him in on some things perhaps she is there like yeah why don't we show some grace why don't we show some mercy but nehemiah realizes it's not the king it's not the queen he says it's the good hand of my god that's upon me he's the one directing things proverbs 21 verse 1 says the king's heart is in the hand of the lord and like the rivers of water he turns it wherever he wishes And that's still true today. That wasn't just the kings of Israel. We see that throughout the Bible. That was Pharaoh. That was Nebuchadnezzar. That was Cyrus. That was Caesar Augustus. We we see throughout the Bible, the king's heart is in the hand of the Lord and he can turn it whatever way he wishes. It's still true today. God is sovereign. He's in control. With all of our crazy rulers and leaders and what's going on today, God is still in control and he's gonna accomplish his plan. There's vessels of honor And there's vessels of dishonor, but they're not gonna be able to stop the plan and the purpose of God in our life and in our world. And so all of these things are happening during this period of time. I know that sometimes we wanna rush through it. and We wanna say, oh Lord, give me the answer or step into this situation. But the truth is, is maybe God is using that time to prepare you that you would understand in a better way the task that's in front of you and to ask the Lord for help and to ask him for strength, he might be working behind the scenes. He might be working in somebody else's heart, granting you favor, setting the whole thing up, that he would be glorified. And so all of these things are taking place. You know, one of the things I love about this story more than anything else is here's this heavy burden that's on Nehemiah's heart. And in verse five, you know, as the king says, okay, what is it that you want me to do? Verse five, Nehemiah says, I ask that you send me to Judah. Send me. Here's this great need. Nehemiah says, uh, he doesn't say, okay, so send this group or send this delegation. No, he says, send me to Judah. It's one thing to recognize the need. It's one thing to say, you know, somebody should really do something about this. But how easy is it to say, oh, Lord, send them. Send him. Send her. Send that pastor, that missionary, that evangelist, send somebody with a little more time and energy and giftings than I have. It's something else entirely to say, oh, Lord, send me. I'm willing to step out. I wanna be obedient. Of course, it reminds me very much of Isaiah chapter six. As Isaiah is in the presence of the Lord in Isaiah six, verse eight, he hears the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send? And who will go for us? And then Isaiah said, here am I, send me. Isn't that incredible to think that the voice of God is going out in heaven? Who are we gonna send? Who's gonna go for us? That it's not just automatic. He's not gonna force us to serve him. He's not gonna impose his will and say, no, this is what you're gonna have to do. No, it's a privilege. It's a choice The voice of the Lord goes out, you know, who are we gonna send? Who's gonna go for us? Will we be like Isaiah and say, here am I, send me? Whatever that means. We don't always know the scale. We don't always know the implications. Is it across the globe? Is it across the street? Are we preaching to thousands? Are we inviting one person to church? Is it just some simple act of love and kindness or grace or mercy, but some small step of faith and obedience where we would say, Lord, I'm willing, I'm available. I see this need, here am I, send me. Nehemiah says, send me to Judah. Now we'll close here with verses nine and 10. It says, then I went to the governors in the region beyond the river and gave them the king's letters. Now the king had sent captains of the army and horsemen with me. When Sambalat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite official heard of it, they were deeply disturbed that a man had come to seek the well-being of the children of Israel. And so now here Nehemiah is stepping out with these official orders from the king and we're introduced in verse 10 to Sanballat and Tobiah. We'll be talking more and more about them as we continue our study through the book of Nehemiah, but they become sort of the villains of the story the opposition now that is going to present itself to Nehemiah, and so we'll talk about them and their background and attack coming from the outside and attack coming from the inside and the way that the enemy was gonna try and distract Nehemiah from his work. But one thing for us to take note of as we're closing here this morning is if you wanna be used by the Lord, if you wanna step out in faith and obedience, then you should expect opposition. Just like we talked about in the beginning of the study, we process what we're going through through the word of God. Is this something that God said that we should expect? Well, Jesus said in John 15, a servant isn't greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they're gonna persecute you. I love what Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 12. He says, beloved, don't think it's strange concerning the fiery trial, which is to try you as though some strange thing were happening don't act like it's bizarre or weird. You should expect there's going to be trials. There's going to be opposition. Jesus had to deal with that when he was here on earth. And so this is something that we should be expected. But you notice, when does the attack come? When does it come against Nehemiah? It's not when he's there in the palace thinking about it. It's not when he's there in the presence of the king and he's sad and he's upset. Oh man, what a horrible thing that's going on there. That's not when the attack comes. The attack comes when he actually does something about it. When he steps out in faith and obedience, responds to what God is putting on his heart, that's where the attack comes. And I think the same is true in our life. You know, the enemy doesn't mind us so much gathering together and saying, oh man, there's lots of great needs around here. (laughs) Oh, look at these issues that are going on in the church. Look at these issues that are going on in the world. I don't think the enemy minds that all that much. It's when we put the word of God into practice. It's when we connect and apply it to our lives. It's when we actually start doing something about it and those strongholds of the enemy are now being threatened. And the work that God wants to do is being built up that's when attack, and that's when opposition comes, and it's something that should be expected. And so when you see walls that are broken down, when you see gates that are burned with fire, whether it's in your home, in a relationship, something that the Lord has put on your heart, there's some work for you to do. When you see that, and you pray, and you seek the Lord, and and you recognize this burden, Lord, is from you, and now I'm gonna step out in faith, there's going to be opposition because here's what we have to realize. The enemy, he comes to rob and steal and destroy. He's wreaking havoc. He was wreaking havoc in Jerusalem. He's still wreaking havoc today. Of course, it seems ironic that here Sam Bollett and Tobiah, that they would be greatly disturbed that someone has come to seek the well-being of the children of Israel. I don't know that a whole lot has changed. The world is still greatly disturbed that somebody would be seeking their well-being. But of course, whenever we respond to a work that God is doing. These are people that the enemy is ripping off. These are people that the enemy is attacking. These are people that the enemy has in bondage. And so when we step out and we seek their well-being because God has put it on our heart and it's for his kingdom and for his glory, there's gonna be opposition, but greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. And we're standing in the power and the authority of Jesus Christ his blood was shed, and there's nothing the enemy can do about it. We preach the gospel, we preach the word of God, and we say, Lord, I know you've put this burden on my heart, and I know I can't do it on my own, so I'm asking you to fill me with your Holy Spirit. Give me the power, give me the strength. I mean, I want to see these strongholds of the enemy come down. I want to see your work built up for your kingdom and for your glory, Amen. We'll stop there for this morning. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for who you are. And Lord, I do thank you for each one of us here. And we recognize, Lord, that you've gathered us all together. You know our hearts. You know our lives. You know what's going on. And so, Lord, I just pray. I pray for anyone here who's in exile, anyone here who has been driven away from you, maybe their own choices, their own decisions, maybe it's been a slow drift. Lord, I just pray that if they're here this morning and they're far away from you, that they would look to the place of sacrifice, that they would look to the cross where your blood was shed and your love was poured out for them, that they could be forgiven, that they could be healed, that they could be restored, that they could be brought in to close fellowship with you. Lord, I pray for anyone here this morning, who perhaps is considering some burden that you've put upon their heart, some work for them to be involved in. God, I pray that you'd help them to wait on you, but to step out in faith when you would call them to. Lord, I pray for anyone who is currently engaged in that great work. Lord, may you continue to lead them and guide them. We wanna see the strongholds of the enemy be broken down. In the lives of our family, and the lives of our church family, and our world, we want to see the gates of hell be cracked into, Lord, that there would be people set free. We want to see your work be built up and strengthened. And so we just commit these things into your hands and we pray that you'd be moving and working powerfully and that you would help us to respond in the way that you would have us. We love you, Lord, and we praise you. We ask all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's all stand together.